0: Did you guys know that we have a newsletter? Each week, Longest Shortest Times creator Hillary Frank writes a little note about what's going on in her mom life. Last week, she talked about getting her daughter Sasha to finish her dinner with the help of two strategically placed clementines. That sounds like fun, right? But we're actually thinking about how to make the newsletter even better. We know you guys are busy people with overstuffed inboxes, so we want to hear from you. How can we make our weekly emails feel like a special treat? We made a survey. Please go fill it out. Whether you already subscribe to the newsletter or not, this is going to take about a minute. And to thank you guys for your time, we're going to be sending out a set of our temporary mom tattoos to three lucky listeners. Find the survey at longestshortesttime.com survey2018. Also pin that link to our profiles on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks. Did you ever take any wild risks? Do anything impulsive?
1: So I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area,
0: and um, so I grew up sailing. This is Dina. She says her parents kept her on a fairly short leash as a kid, but when she was a teenager, she and her friends would go out on their own on these sailboats called El Toro's. They're about eight feet long with one sail. So what we used to do is we used to leave early in the morning from Corinthian Yacht Club
1: and tack all the way across the bay to go to St. Francis Yacht Club. Because St. Francis Yacht Club on the bar used to have these bowls of pretzels with cheese in the middle. Yum. Yum. So what we used to do is we used to sneak into St. Francis Yacht Club, and we would open some sort of <laughs> our shirts and make a pouch and then pour several bowls of the pretzels into our shirts, <laughs> And then we would get back in the boat and sail back across the bay.
0: So Seems worth the time
1: and effort. Well, now you can just get them in a bag. They're called combos, right? So those were the sort of risks that I took. And I think I became more of a risk junkie when I got older. A Pakistani army officer named Colonel Zishan is giving me a tour of a jihadi rehabilitation center. Jury selection begins today in this country's largest ISIS recruiting trial to date. They're trying to put together what is an extremely long and large crime scene. Yep, the dean I'm talking to is... Dina Temple-Raston, NPR News, Odinsa, Denmark. Dina Temple-Raston,
0: NPR News, Islamabad. Dina Temple Rastin, 10 year veteran counterterrorism correspondent for NPR and former teenage combos themed. This is the longest, shortest time. I'm Andrea Salenzi. These days, Dina hosts the Audible original series, What Were You Thinking? It's a show all about navigating adolescence. In each episode, Dina tells the story of a kid who's made a truly terrible, life changing decision. They've gotten arrested for online hacking or taken a gun to school, even committed suicide. And then she uses current research into developmental neuroscience to try to explain the steps that led to that choice. These stories are extreme, but they actually offer a lot of insight into teenagers in general. And we know that plenty of you are raising teens right now, trying to understand why they behave the way they do. Today, we're going to hear the story of one kid who tried to join ISIS and how, surprisingly, his risky decision-making might help you understand your own kid's brain a little better. Then, after all that, stick around for a segment we call What's Up with Hillary? The Nor'easter Edition. That's coming up later in the show. Dina, when did you start to get interested in teenagers? Well, because I was an
1: NPR counterterrorism correspondent, I was constantly talking to teenagers. So they were either brothers and sisters of people who had radicalized. They were the actual people who had radicalized. Um, when, when there were Al-Qaeda recruits, they tended to be in their um, you know, late 20s, early 30s. But what I noticed is when ISIS started recruiting the United States, the kids were 14, 15, 16
0: years old. So that's no longer an ideological decision. That's an adolescent decision. A lot of Dina's reporting over the years has focused on the Somali-American community in Minneapolis, a community which dozens of young people have left to join extremist groups in Somalia and Syria, and often gotten killed there. But many of the parents Dina was meeting in Minneapolis, whose sons and daughters had left, they weren't hardliners. They'd raised kids who were sweet and caring and smart. For these families, losing their children to al-Shabaab and ISIS was horrifying, because
1: you have to dig in so much when you're doing um, the terrorism beat in a real visceral way, you end up identifying incredibly with the people around you, not just the moms, but the whole family. And particularly when you're talking about these sorts of things, there's so much stuff they tell you that tells you so much about their family that you almost become like a counselor. They expect because you know something about terrorism that somehow you can diagnose what their kids have done. And the reason why I started this a whole podcast was after ten years of having moms ask me, "Why did my child radicalize? We're not radical Muslims. I don't understand why he made this decision." And it's usually a he. Sometimes it would be a, a girl. Um, I never had an answer, and it seemed so um, wrong to just take and not give. I needed to have something more than a shrug, and the that is frankly, what kicked off this entire idea of understanding how brain science can help us understand adolescent decisions. Because sometimes a bad adolescent decision really has to do with their brains. And if we understand this more, then, then maybe we can help them make better decisions.
0: So tell me, how did you first meet Abdullahi Yusuf? When did he first come into your life? The way I sort of found Abdullahi Yusuf
1: is that um, I saw across the wire— that um, there was a kid who had been um, stopped from boarding a plane by the FBI and that he had been released into a halfway house. And all the headlines that were around that were terrorists released to halfway house. And I looked at it and I went, oh my goodness, I think they're going to try jihadi rehab in
0: Minnesota. Dina had heard about programs in places like Denmark that had attempted to rehabilitate would-be ISIS recruits. But something like this was utterly new in the United States. Here, Dean had seen kids like this get a decade or longer of prison time for offering material support to a terrorist organization. I mean, it was just so clear to me that it was something totally different. So I started calling my sources saying,
1: this is jihadi rehab, isn't it? This is them trying to figure out if they can help a kid think things through in a different way instead of a knee-jerk reaction that
0: he must be a terrorist. And um, so I started chasing him. National security cases like Abdullahi's are always really sensitive. And this one, because Abdullahi was the first jihadi rehabilitation case, was especially so. There were lots of requests for interviews from other journalists. None of them made it through. But Dina kept asking. And finally, after three years, she got the go-ahead and became the only journalist to interview him. I knew so much about him by that time that it was almost like meeting someone
1: um, that you've had a relationship already with. And so... That you know, must have
0: been strange for him.
1: <laughs> I, I don't think it was for one very, very specific reason. And that is that I brought pizza. It is amazing the doors that pizza opens up. So what I did is I went and got two large pizzas from a pizza place near where I live. I carry them on my lap. Flew to Minneapolis, put them in the hotel refrigerator. and New then, York City pizza. New York City pizza. You are correct. Because he'd never what, had New York Pizzeria? City pizza. It's a very good one. Okay. And it's on the Upper West Side. And I knew that he was Muslim, so I just got cheese pizza. And I I actually had one—I had two different kinds of crust because I wasn't sure what kind he liked. I carry these in, and he's there, and he's quite a handsome young man. And he's very polite, and he's very shy. And he's incredibly tall, and I'm not super tall. So he stands up full height, and he extends a hand right away, like politely, to shake my hand. He says, pleasure to meet you. And I said, guess what I have in this bag? And he said, what? And I said, two New York pizzas. Have you ever had one? And he goes, no, I've only ever had Pizza Hut. And I said, your life is about to change. And so some of the best tape that we have in the first uh, episode Actually came while Abdullahi was eating pizza, and we had to sort of work with the tape because you could hear him
0: chewing. Well, tell me about him. Um, what was his life like before this all happened? He was the last
1: guy that you'd think would make this kind of decision. And he's clearly a really smart, really intuitive, um, I, downright sweet kid. And if you talk to his parents, they talk about, or his grandmother would say, you know, he was the kid who was always polite, always asking if he could help me. So for people who have certain suppositions about who would go and decide to join ISIS, I think the fact that he is so well-spoken and so quiet and so thoughtful is the opposite of what you were expecting. And uh, so we sat down and I just... I thought the easiest thing for him to do is to recount to me the, um, the day he was stopped from getting on a plane to join ISIS by the FBI.
2: The FBI came and said, Abdullahi, we need to talk to you. And they're like, you're not flying today. And I said, that's, that's not fair. And they're like, well, we can have this discussion somewhere else, you know, somewhere more private. So we go to a different part of the airport. I was being a pain in the ass, I would say. We we talked about this, what to say if you were stopped, you know. They asked me where I'm going and I say Istanbul for vacation. Uh, they asked me if my parents know I'm here and I asked them if their parents know they're here. Uh, they asked me if I would mind if they went and talked to my parents. Um, and then what did you think? I'm fucked. <laughs>
1: and what was so amazing about that is how adolescent he sounded about the whole thing. And when I asked him, I mean, do you realize, did you realize the gravity of what you were doing? And he said, I was just going to get on a plane. I didn't think it meant anything. I had no idea that they could say that I was conspiring to kill people overseas. It never occurred to me that uh, this was something called material support to a terrorist organization. He said, "I I thought if they caught me before I went, then it wasn't a crime. This happened, you know, in May 2014, before there were the beheadings, before, you know, we really knew what ISIS stood for, when there were— The
0: kidnapping, sex slaves. Yeah. None of that had happened.
1: And if you remember at the time, everybody was against Assad. So um, if you joined before that, then you could have been naive. And in Abdullahi's case, I think you could make a pretty good case he didn't know what he was getting into. And one of the most telling things he said is, I said, you must understand that the FBI thinks that you would come back and attack here. You must understand that's their greatest fear. And he said to me, no, 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 we had a solution for that. And I said, really? What was your solution? And he said, we knew that as soon as we landed, if we tore up our passports, they couldn't use our passports for somebody else or to make us come back. Which, if you ask me, that's an incredibly 17-year-old solution to a very complicated problem i mean and i didn't want to say to him well you do realize that they could compel you to go to an embassy and get a new passport so your awesome solution to this is maybe not as foolproof as you thought but it gets to this whole idea that these are adolescent decisions instead of ideological ones
0: right that's just like well, if you ask him a cop and he says he isn't, then he's definitely not a cop. You know, it's like that kind of teenage wisdom. Right. Well, of course, he would tell you the truth, right? So, yeah. um, and But
1: that's why we like them, right? Isn't this what we love about teenagers is this sort of naive kernel that they have, that they have the beginning of an understanding of how the world works, but also still has this idealistic, naive kernel that—, that I guess we we as adults assume adolescents understand how they work and then every once in a while you get this question out of left field and you go, "Oh, I totally get how you got there."
0: When we come back, how Abdullahi got there. Turns out this may have been the result of some very normal developmental changes that happen to all teenagers and the result of a social studies project. Stay with us. <laughs> We're back with Dina temple rastin host of the new podcast, What Were You Thinking? One of the things that's most striking about Abdullahi Yusuf's story was how he began to learn about ISIS in the first place. The kids in his class were all assigned countries to research. Abdullahi, by chance, got Syria. But of course, it takes a lot more than that to convince a kid to pack his bag and buy a plane ticket to Istanbul. Exactly. Well, I mean, there was a
1: combination of events that I don't... They were almost a perfect cocktail. So he's the only, he's one of two Somalis on his football team in high school. And he'd never really had the kind of camaraderie that he had with this high school team, mostly white, okay? They actually wore t-shirts that said band of brothers. And so he had all these people he was hanging out with, this sort of whole support system of peers. And then
0: boom, football is over. And he was alone. Dina says that around this time, Abdullahi's best friend, Hanad, mysteriously disappeared. As he tried to make new friends, Abdullahi fell in with a group of other Somali-Americans. These guys were a bit older, but they looked like him, came from his community, and they'd actually even known his old pal Hanad. It turns out, when Hanad disappeared, he'd actually joined ISIS. And these guys, they'd helped recruit him. So it's a combination of amazing events
1: that end up bringing Abdullahi to the precipice of ISIS. And ISIS was offering him the one thing that he no longer had, a group, a support system, peers who believed the same thing he did. And it was just so striking to have him talk about the football team and then have him talk about his friends with whom he had banded together so that they could go and be heroes with ISIS. And the vocabulary is
0: identical. To make things worse, as he began working on that research project about Syria for school, his new friends were eager to help. They started showing
1: him videos from ISIS. And as he looked at these videos, he, he thought, this is outrageous. Women and children, poor women and children, Muslim women and children in Syria are being killed. No one's helping them. The United States isn't helping them. Uh, they said they would and they didn't. And ISIS really uses this as a propaganda tool
0: to galvanize young people who do think that they can make a difference. As Dina explains in the episode, there's actually a neurological explanation for why ISIS videos are so effective at radicalizing young people. It has to do with this part of the brain that's hyperactive in the adolescent years called the insula. Here's a clip from UCLA neurobiologist Daniel Siegel.
1: The insula feeds into an area where self-awareness is generated, which is right
0: next to an area for other awareness. These are the neurobiological paths of empathy. And amazingly, even morality is mediated in an adjacent area as
1: well. So as you gain a sense of what's going on in someone else, what's going on inside yourself, you also have a sense of being a part of a larger whole. Researchers say those butterflies you feel in your stomach when you see someone you love or that sadness you might feel when you see the suffering of war, may all have a connection to the insula. This is one of the reasons why, as an adolescent, you are going to
0: save the mountain gorillas, or you become a vegan. And it's why I cried when my dad brought home some living lobsters that he was planning to cook for a special occasion. And I was like, you can't put them in the boiling water. Cried all night.
1: That's right. And then as soon as you had your 24th birthday, it's "Mm, lobster past the butter, right? So, So this is the... This is the thing. So it's on hyper alert. The insula is on hyper alert. And then if you bring that together in combination with different parts of the brain that maybe are not working as efficiently as they should, what you end up having is having, it's part of the reason why kids are so passionate.
0: All this means that it's possible that when Abdullahi was watching those videos, he's actually more moved and upset by the suffering he saw than many adults might have been, more desperate to actually do something. In some ways, that's kind of cool, right? I mean, don't we want kids to care about the world and try to ease other people's suffering? We see this going on right now, in a powerful way, with the Never Again movement. As I'm recording this, kids all over the country are walking out of their high schools, calling for better gun policies. And if you think about that,
1: it completely turns on its head this idea of adolescence being something you just have to get through. Adolescence is, in fact, this amazing process that turns you into a better, maybe more wholesome, more spiritually aware, more
0: giving adult if you manage that adolescence in the right way. Throughout What Were You Thinking? Dina points out all these qualities of the developing brain that might at first seem like flaws. And she shows how they're really necessary and incredible adaptations to help kids navigate their world. For instance, Dopamine, that reward-seeking neurotransmitter you always hear about that makes teenagers drive way too fast or spend all their daylight hours in a sweaty basement dungeon playing World of Warcraft. That's the same thing that helps them jump headfirst into unfamiliar new challenges and drives them to master new skills. Did you tell him about the parts of his brain that led him there? What were those conversations like? Well, so here's
1: one of the many, many things that's great about Abdullahi Yusuf. By then, he had been in a sort of jihadi rehab program that was making him read more critically because they've shown that different parts of the brain actually respond to things like critical reading. In fact, so we sit down to have the pizza and, you know, we, we talk about the different kinds of New York pizza. And then he goes, have you ever read
0: Foucault? Michel Foucault, a French philosopher known best for his theories about prison, surveillance, and social control.
1: <laughs> and you're like, and I said, "Yeah, I have read Foucault. Have you read Foucault?" And he goes, "Yeah, you know, when you do, when you talk about Foucault, when he talks about being in prison and you're in prison, you know, it's just sort of amazing. Like Foucault helped him understand being incarcerated." Um, and he read letters from Birmingham. But, you know, he was reading The Joy Luck Club. He was reading the autobiography of Malcolm X. You know, actually, my book was on his list, too, which I thought was hilarious. So I I wrote a book called The Jihad Next Door, and it was on his reading list, which I thought was really cool. And his reading list was was something that was supposed—he couldn't just read it and regurgitate. He was being
0: forced to read critically. Abdullahi's counselors had him write essays, forcing him to reflect on his identity and his community— And Dina says that research suggests that this sort of critical reading can actually help develop the insula, that self-awareness part of the brain, and teach it to behave in a way that's a little more grown up.
2: I didn't know everything about what I signed up for. There's answers to the questions I had, but I guess it was just— Could you tell me what the
1: questions are?
2: Like, hmm, is what's going on there wrong or right— Or about me, like, my identity here in America. Do I fit in here? Do I belong here? Or, like, what are my prospects here? Like, where do I see myself? You know, do I don't feel like I'm American, you know? Uh, Am I Muslim? Am I Somali?
0: Abdullahi even wrote a poem, which Dina had him read to her.
2: I had to start every sentence with I am. So it goes, I am an alleged terrorist. I am not sure how that makes me feel. I throw a fit. I am currently drinking a Sierra mist. I am in a hole. I am sure it'll take quite a toll. I am thankful I am whole. I am bold. I am labeled. I am Somali. I am jolly. I am a hoodlum. I am Muslim. I am black. I am this. I am that. I am sure of one thing for a fact. I am a human. So I don't, I just try to make stuff rhyme. So.
0: Oh, that Sierra mist part of the poem it's everything I love about teenagers, that juxtaposition there between so serious and so playful, so thirsty. Like, hmm, what rhymes with terrorist? Well, I am drinking a Sierra mist. But how about, how about, I am Muslim, I am a hoodlum? That's an, how What does about, that
1: say about the way he feels about himself in society? And, and separate from the fact that people think he's an alleged terrorist. It was just so poignant because he really didn't know how he was supposed to feel as an alleged terrorist. And he didn't know um, how this fit in with his Muslimness and his blackness.
0: Were you there for the sentencing?
1: Yes, I was. I was in the courtroom. It was amazing. So we were all preparing ourselves for his going to federal prison for a decision that he had essentially made by that time, almost three years before, and it was it was like a cliffhanger. You know, we were all waiting for the judge to sentence him and how long it would be, and then the judge just sort of sighed and he said, "I just don't see how prison will help this boy." And he may have said, "Young man," but what I wrote on my on my uh, notepad was "boy," and. And then he started talking to various people about rehab and continuing his counseling. And his parents, his father speaks English okay. His mother speaks understands it, but doesn't really speak it. And you could see them being sort of confused by what this conversation was. And then he essentially said, look, you're going to get 20 years supervised release. We're going to put you in a half house for a year. And... So there were factions in Minneapolis. There were people who were very angry with Abdullahi because he testified against some of the other people in the group. And then there were people who were Abdullahi supporters. And so there was this this weird mix of what was going on in in the gallery, right, where where there were all these people who were these women who were um, in Somali traditional dress with hijabs. And and then there were like kids, Somali-American adolescents in like Viking sweatshirts and stuff like that. And um, his parents turned around, and I was sitting next to one of his counselors, and she said, no prison, no prison. I mean, they didn't understand, right? Because you get 20 years minimum in prison for material support, and Abdullahi didn't go to prison at all.
0: How unprecedented was this judge's
1: decision? Absolutely, completely unprecedented. Never happened before. Hasn't happened since.
0: With that ruling— Abdullahi Youssef became the first terrorism defendant in the United States to avoid prison time. Since then, Dina says that she's gone back to Abdullahi's family, talked to them about the brain science that may have been behind the choices he made, just like she'd set out to do at the very beginning of this project. But she also says that some of the most meaningful conversations she's had have been with the adolescents themselves, like Chloe Love. A high school student who became suicidal after her best friend and several other students at her high school killed themselves. Dina explained to Chloe that when they're making decisions, teenagers rely on a part of the brain that tends to make everything seem like a worst case scenario.
1: And when I talked to Chloe Love, she looked at me and she said, So you mean I'm not crazy? And I said, No, you're not. And she said, Wow, you mean everybody is going through this? And I said, Yeah, actually pretty much everybody is. And she said, oh, what a relief. And that, I mean, that actually, when she said that, I I got chills because that was exactly what I was trying to do with this podcast. Just having that kernel of understanding about your brain and the way it's working gives you so much power and gives you so much control. And what we're hoping with What Were You Thinking is that we give that power and control, not just to parents and not just to educators, but to adolescents. They can hear themselves and these kids we're talking about and possibly know that, one, they're not alone, and B, what they're feeling is completely normal, and this too will pass.
0: It's kind of neat to think about raising a teenager someday and just how, how much fun it's going to be to watch another person go through this process. <laughs> And just the idea that you're not done cooking yet, that there's actually this whole other phase where where you could really stir them up in interesting ways if you do it right.
1: And that it's not a negative thing. I think that adolescence has gotten a really bad rap. And uh, the more we learn about the adolescent brain, I think the more we understand that there is actually a great deal that we can do for adolescence and how it can really be an amazingly positive time instead of this thing that for so long we've dreaded. And... Um, As a parent, as an educator, even as an adolescent, if you go into it with that kind of attitude, I think it really changes how you're going to experience those years between 13 and 24.
0: Dina Temple Rastin is the host of the Audible original series, What Were You Thinking? The whole first season is available for a binge listen now at audible.com slash adolescentbrain, all one word. And those episodes from the first season will be released once a week on Apple Podcasts starting March 30th. It's a fascinating listen, whether you have a teenager, have been a teenager, or are currently a teenager yourself. In a minute, something completely different. Oh my God. Don't go away. Say advertisement. Advertisement. Good job. (laughs) we're back and now it's time for a change of pace remember that blizzard that pummeled the east coast just a few weeks ago well right in its path was our show's creator hillary frank cue the jingle what's up with hillary andrea
3: (laughs) oh my god what's up
0: and this was an especially challenging time for Hillary because she'd already been home alone with her eight year old daughter, Sasha, for two days. Her husband had been out of town and Sasha had been homesick. And then, the moment her kid is fever free, the governor declares a state of emergency for New Jersey
3: and schools canceled. It's just me and her and my book deadline that I'm trying to meet. <laughs>
0: So we got Hillary on the phone to see how they were doing on day three. The two of them cooped up at home together.
3: She's really into like her little projects. So she um, asked me for the biggest cardboard box that we had in the basement. And I went and I brought it upstairs. It was so big that it was like hard to round the corners on the stairs (laughs) to get this box out. And she can fit in it with plenty of space around her. She's decorated the whole thing with a Sharpie and pipe cleaners, and it is a car.
0: (laughs) That is so creative.
3: It has brakes. It has like a brake and a gas pedal. It has like a steering wheel. And she went through more than a full roll of scotch tape to put this thing together.
0: You know, if only it worked, though, really. Yeah,
3: she actually said to me, the next step is to figure out how to make it run.
0: <laughs> is she kind of saying, I kind of need a break from you two right now? Because it's just a lot of time <laughs> to spend at home with someone else.
3: I think so. I mean, so this morning, by our third day together, <laughs> I think we woke up already on each other's nerves. <laughs> <laughs> and then I needed to take a shower because sometimes people need to shower and um, I was like do something with yourself while I'm showering so I don't know she was like doing something and then when I got out she said mommy do you have a shave of wood and I was like <laughs> a shave of wood I don't I, I think normally I would have been like tell me honey what is a shave of wood but I was like a shave of wood what's that <laughs> I guess, you know, when there's those, like, kid scratch activities, you know, where, like, you have the paper that has color underneath it, but it's covered with black, and you take, like, a sharp little wooden tool and, like, scratch off the black. Yes. She lost her shave of wood. (laughs) I just wanted to know if I had one lying around, and I was like, no, (laughs) I don't have that.
0: I can kind of remember where Sasha's coming from here. She's stuck at home again. It's snowing out, but not the fun kind of snow. It's the slushy kind. And there's this feeling like, Mom, I'm bored. As if your mom can solve this crisis for you. You think I just have shaves of wood lying around? Who do you think I am? (laughs) Later that night, Sasha somehow carried her cardboard car all the way up the stairs to her bedroom. And then she sat there in her car, dreaming of the open road. And that's where Hillary found her when it was time for bed. And I
3: found her sitting in the car and I was like, All right, all right, it's it's like let's get the bedtime routine on. Let's let's start reading a book. And she's like, wait a second, I'm listening to Kelly Clarkson. There was nothing playing. She's like, I've got to, I've got to press pause. Wait a minute, wait a minute, and and it, and she's like, for real, I'm not joking. And I looked in her car, and she showed me. It says, um, like on the radio of her little fake car, it says Kelly Clarkson, Stronger. <laughs> <laughs> and there is a pause button. She's like, see, I was pressing pause. I can't talk to you until I've pressed pause.
0: Kelly Clarkson's hit song, Stronger. It's about making it through a difficult time.
4: What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Stand no
0: But tomorrow school, school will be back? Yes, it better be. It
4: wasn't. Hey Andrea, it's Hillary. It's my fourth day in a row alone with this child. And she has just been terrorizing me. She's like, she's a big talker, and like she's nonstop telling me knock knock jokes <laughs> asking me would you rather. And it's just stuff like, like would you rather be 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18? And she, like, goes all the way up to, <laughs> to 41, which is how old I am. And I'm supposed to pick an age, and then she does it all over again. And then she's, like, become obsessed with her Rubik's Cube. And she's learned how to do one side, and then she learned how to do two sides. And then she asks me, like, what color do you want me to do? Do you want me to do white, yellow, red, <laughs> orange? And I'm supposed to, like, tell her which two colors I want her to do. And then she does them, and then she asks me again, all over again, to name the colors. And... Sorry, your uh, voicemail <laughs> recording cut me off. Uh, I guess I'm going on and on and on because I haven't talked to another grown-up in a while. Um, anyway, long story short, it is getting, like, all the shining up in here. <laughs> it's like, our power keeps flickering on and off, and there's, like, a broken, random lollipop stick lying here um on the table next to the couch and i have a feeling like i'm gonna lock myself in a room and my kid is gonna come after me with a shape of wood i guess i'll try you again tomorrow i'll probably be calling you from uh, my topiary maze out in the middle of the snow call for help i don't suppose they uh Told you anything in Denver about the tragedy we had up here during the winter of 1970? And she was like, can I just pretend to be a baby? And I was like, okay, but no talking. And she goes, gah, gah.
2: For some people, uh, solitude and
4: isolation can of itself become a problem.
3: What are you doing? an escape plan. Why are you drawing an escape plan? Because. Why are you asking me? I don't understand what's happening. You've never done this before.
2: I have to. There's no ways to escape the bathroom.
3: You're not going to start a fire, are you?
2: No.
4: An escape plan... Like, why, why does she suddenly need an escape plan? What is happening? The weird thing is um, I'm sitting here and I'm looking out my window at the snow and everything's white and the trees are, like, being weighed down by the weight of this really heavy, wet snow. And Sasha was born almost exactly eight years ago. And she was born during the snowiest, at that time, it was the snowiest winter on record in Philadelphia history. And so seeing this snow, we haven't had a very snowy winter, seeing this snow is just, like, making me nostalgic for when she was born. And it's weird because it was, like, probably the hardest time of my life. But, I don't know, like, seeing this snow and being trapped inside is, like, also making me remember just being trapped into, like, having to snuggle with her and having to find a way to, to get to know her despite all of the hard stuff. And um, there's a piece of that that I miss, yeah, it's weird. It's weird. It's like this. This. I don't know, I'm I'm caught between feeling like, oh my god, when is this gonna end? And oh, there's something kind of nice about this.
0: If you want to see a photo of Sasha's cardboard car that only plays one song. It's up on our website, com, And while you're there, got a kid who's driving you crazy? And have you ever tried talking to them about how they make decisions? What are those conversations like? Tell us in the comments for this episode. That's number 156. This show is produced by me, Andrea Salenzi with Kristen Clark. Our show's creator and executive producer is Hilary Frank. Our engineers are Pete Karam and Jared O'Connell. Our technical director is the Reverend John Delore. Our music is performed by hotmoms.gov and directed by Allison Leighton Brown. We get editorial support from Peter Clowney, Antonia Akatunde, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Rekha Murthy and Julia Wang. Make sure you're subscribed to the longest, shortest time in Stitcher or your favorite podcast app so you won't miss a thing. And don't forget to take our newsletter survey. Remember, that's at com slash survey2018. We're going to be back with a whole new season of episodes on April 25th. We've got some incredibly fun things in the works and a bunch of opportunities for you to get involved. You can help us track down some teenagers for our awesome teenager panel. You can tell us about your kids' imaginary friends. We're also gathering questions from you about the things you wish you'd asked your partner before having kids. Just go to longestshortesttime.com, hit the Participate tab, and submit your story.
2: I, I was worming my way up a ridge and glassing the meadow below the wolves are fading in and out of sight and that's when I saw him a man he's crouched low and he's running with the wolves and he stared right at me Marvel and Stitcher present Wolverine the Long Night out now only on Stitcher Premium. For one month free, go to WolverinePodcast.com and use promo code MARVEL. <laughs> da,
3: da, 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 da. Stitcher. <clears throat> I say it. Okay. Da, da,